Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today's episode is on futurity. And so I want to start because I was going to propose this topic because I've been thinking a lot about how democratic societies begin to imagine the future in times of political crisis. So Laura, how do you think that people are thinking about the future right now in the U.S.? I think, first of all, that thinking about the future is a luxury in some ways. Not everyone has the luxury of thinking about the future, investing in the future. I mean, it's hard It's hard to do when all of your needs aren't met, or if the majority or, or all of your time is spent meeting your needs. Like, for example, if you're homeless and you have to worry about where to eat, sleep that night, I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no future in, in that situation. There's a certain power structure involved in thinking about the future. Uh, there's a different availability um, to charting based on your social class. If you have a rich daddy, (laughs) you can chart your own future. Otherwise, it's difficult. So the way that we think about, you know, the future in America is definitely, like, structured by class. I feel like people use the future to think about how they can reshape the present. Mm -hmm. Or, like, move towards reshaping the present. At least from, like, a political standpoint. Oh, that's best case scenario. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the best case scenario. I actually don't think people are doing that, but I think that, that you're right, that the impulse towards futurity in terms of governance is about mm-hmm. using the future to help reshape the present for different kinds of political goals, yeah. So what, what do you think? I mean, I feel like there's this diverse set of approaches to thinking about the future that are like based on your circumstances. How do you th- think people approach thinking about futurity? So I'm writing about this right now for my new book, and I've been thinking a lot about the conversation about civil rights between, say, Martin Luther King and, you know, the Kennedy brothers or Martin Luther King and LBJ. And I've been thinking about temporality and chronopolitics, like how time influences politics and the way that people ask and make demands for certain kinds of political goals. And in the conversation about civil rights, you know, the white power structure was saying, wait, 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 you should wait. And of course, civil rights activists, especially in, say, 1963, maybe after Birmingham, were like, we've waited 100 years since emancipation alone. Where are equal political rights? You can't just go around, you know, showcasing the egalitarianism of America's ideals without actually delivering the goods, right? And so a lot of the conversation about rights based agitation is very much about defining the chrono politics, the time and temporality of a political movement and trying to make something seem more urgent, right? So that there's an exigency that has to be addressed right now. And I think that for me, one of the reasons why it's important now to think about how we're thinking about the future is because everybody is responding to crises. So you know, with a 24-hour news cycle and the immediate refresh on your Facebook browser and, um, you know, just the, the speed at which people are consuming information is changing the way that they experience time. And I think that the immediacy and the immediate gratification of getting your box from Amazon 
is actually recircuiting people's brains so that they can't think about the future. So it's like constant immediacy. Immediacy is the thing. I was ranting about this to my students the other day about Tinder and about how men and women use Tinder differently. I was talking about how men use Tinder because they want immediate gratification and they think that they're going to get laid. And women sit together in groups and look through Tinder and then just swipe no on every dude because what they really want is the power to reject and they want the feeling that there are all these options available. So part of me also thinks that like the plenitude of options in terms of like a consumer culture, you know, targeted cross-class strata is also changing the way that we you know think about the future and then one other thing that occurred to me is about the very first thing that george w bush did when he moved into the white house is that he forced the congressional budget office to stop doing five-year economic projections and only do to to, to switch them to only doing two-year budget projections where in a country like let's say japan they do 10-year budget projections it's easy to hide a ton of long-term consequences of policies if you're not doing long-term projections of what policies might cost socially or economically, you know, for, for huge swaths of the population. So I think that this immediate gratification, the, you know, the restructuring of the way in which we think about projecting into the future mm-hmm. costs of policies, and then the way that we understand rights arguments about who should agitate for rights sooner or later, those are all indices to me that we're having a crisis in our ability to imagine. Think about how infrequently Donald Trump talks about the future. I mean, he's really only responding to crises in the moment. What do you think? I mean, I, I like what you said about policymaking, and I do think it has to be definitely more oriented towards the future. I mean, companies do that, like, in their executive pay oh, yeah. schemes. Oh, totally. They try and pay with shares of the company. That way, like, the CEOs have to be invested in the future growth of the company and, like, the future uh, financial health of the company That's right. in their decision-making because they're not getting paid in dollars that they can then take away. A lot of their compensation is shares of the company. So the long-term health of the company is uh, an investment for them. Uh, in policymaking, there's definitely, a, like, a blind eye towards the future. Yeah. And I think, I mean... Something that comes to mind to me is um, the the prison system. It pretty much wholesale ignores the the inmates' future. Yeah. Um, And it creates situations where, like, upon release, inmates end up uh, recommitting crimes because, you know, they're considered unemployable. And then, like, programs to, like, reenter and reenter people into society are either non-existent or underfunded. That's a good example, not just because I study prisons, but because it gives us a sense about why thinking about futurity is important. Because if you don't, then there's no sense of responsibility, right? right? There's no feedback mechanism for accountability. Charter schools have that same problem. You know, most of the privatization movement is really about cutting off our ability to imagine futures. And so at the political level, I think you and I agree that the inability to chart a political future together collectively, right, with multiple kinds of nodes of input is super important and valuable. But I, I also think that it's it's undercutting us interpersonally, like on all of the levels of power, the inability to see the future is also eroding, um, you know, social networks and community solidarity because people don't see members of their community as part of their future community. Mm-hmm. And so the DACA debate, the immigration debate, the wall, <clears throat> refugee policy, all of that stuff, is about trying to use immediate crises to undercut our ability to imagine futurity. And I think that the 
the long-term result of that, <laughs> I think the long-term result of that is uh, an erosion of, of the possibility of building like intergenerational justice struggles. You know, because people can't see young people or old people as part of their community or as part of their future, and so then they won't struggle together. That seems like a huge problem to me, especially in a time of crisis. I was thinking about Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, thinking about sort of these massive shocks to the political system and how they reorient us towards hyper-hyper-presentism, right? The consumer mode of immediate gratification and then just constant a permanent cycle of crisis and exigency. And I just feel like that is creating a lot of the anxiety that we talked about in an earlier podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the pace of chronopolitics is making people anxious because there's no time to think about the future, right? There is not a lot of downtime <laughs> that's available for thinking about future potentials. Um, and part of, I mean, part of that is like some people three jobs to make ends meet <laughs> or, yeah. you know, have con- constant childcare responsibilities. I mean, they simply don't have time, like from a structural standpoint. And then it, when you do have time, like as a young person, all of it's occupied with a constantly refreshed Twitter feed or Snapchat stories. I, I do think that people who are in difficult situations culturally, like queer culture, I mean, they, I feel like spend a lot of time playing in, in, the future because the present is really oppressive yeah. to them. And also thinking about the future is really important and like thinking about how to frame the current conversation. Like how do they want the culture to like restructure itself in order to accommodate their lifestyles. And that's really important. And like trying to integrate pro- like the proper pronouns into the conversation. Yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> I mean, I also just think you and I were talking before we started recording about how the future and the ability to imagine new futures really hinges on our ability to articulate desire and manage anticipation. And I think that that's really true that we are living in a time period where people don't know how to label their desires. They can't talk about their feelings. They can't articulate them. They can't talk about what they want or how they want it. All they know is that they want, right? And Mm -hmm. so they fill that want usually with consumer goods if it's available, you know? And if not, it's just an endless cycle of either drudgery work or poverty. And instead of creating a culture that is has a robust welfare state where people have the time to imagine futures and participate in a healthier economy of desire. We just have, you know, people who, who can't, literally cannot pinpoint what they want from their lives in an abstract or very concrete way. I mean, as a college professor, you know, there's this phenomenon now, the quarter-life crisis, which is super interesting to me. And I think the quarter-life crisis is clearly prompted by the hyper-privatization of education. So the college is not just a place to learn about yourself anymore. It's a place where you're going to be trained to be the ultimate worker bee. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the Hunger Games. <laughs> Instead of being, you know, a sort of intellectual space where people can try out lots of different ideas that they hadn't encountered before. And I think, unfortunately, the hyper-privatization of public education, K-12 and higher ed, is leading kids and students to these anxious, precipitous moments where they have not yet been taught about how how large of a scope 
their future actually could be. They're not given the tools to really imagine lifestyles. And you and I have talked about this on other podcasts about um, negative attachments to futures that are foreclosed. And so I just see so many students that are attached to whatever they think their parents had, and that's going to be completely foreclosed to them economically, socially, and politically. And it seems to me that if we don't recenter futurity as like a, as a skill set, thinking about the future, then people aren't going to be able to do it anymore. And that's a real problem because then things don't change and the power structure right. stays extremely rigid and people get frozen out of, of political and social. At the same time, though, if these like students knew that like if they believed that they didn't have a shot at a better future for themselves, like they'd be less productive and less happy. You know, they would just, I mean, it would be like a descent into nihilism, maybe. I don't know. But at the same time, I, I don't know. I think this anticipation for the future can be counterproductive also. I like, agree. <laughs> particularly, I think people can end up putting off things that are important because they have this anticipation about the future. One day I'll take a vacation or... <laughs> You know, they tell themselves, you know, one day I'll spend more time with my family. And they never, never do. <laughs> well, you know, I think that in the U.S. there are these cyclical moments that are deeply rooted in, you know, sort of originary democratic theory that positions hope as the orienting emotion of futurity in a democracy. I think a lot about Kennedy because his administration was entirely focused on hope as an orienting feeling for the nation after the war and after the Eisenhower years and after the 50s, which were just so punctuated by conformity <laughs> and Levitt towns and, you know, mass consumer culture and this burgeoning middle class. And that's all well and fine that hope is a part of sort of democratic optimism at its best, right? That we can imagine a future together that is more inclusive than it's been. However, the problem with that is that there is no hope without despair, which is, of course, the irony. Like, hope in and of itself is an ironic sort of national feeling because the hope of one group is built on the despair of another because with the democratic optimism also come the harsh realities of capital. And I think that without a really healthy interrogation of the way in which capital itself structures feelings, it's very hard to get to hope. Like I said, people, if they if they knew or if they had like an inkling that they weren't able to change social, social classes in their future, I mean, they wouldn't work as hard. I mean, the economy as a whole would be poorer. Um, and it's kind of an unfortunate, I mean, a complete restru restructuring of the economy, perhaps. <clears throat> or even <laughs> a four day work week yeah. I mean, would be helpful. <clears throat> right? I mean, the data on that is pretty clear that four-day work weeks increase productivity rather than decrease it. I mean, it's not like that these are wheels that have to be reinvented from scratch. But there just is no collective imagining of the nation right now <clears throat> that goes beyond just sort of the dog whistles of an administration that needs to both fragment and rehabilitate the governing party in order to actually make the government run. And, you know, it's going to be a long time, I think, before there, there emerges a new sort of framework of futurity. But this is, a, I think, a very transitional political moment, really because I think, you know, we're going to see a massive realignment of political power with the Trump administration that challenges assumptions about governance and about 
the borders and about trade and tariffs and about what the national identity looks like. And I guess I'm very curious about the absence of the climate change debate. Not because I don't understand that the reason that it's absent is because it's complicated and technical, but also I think climate change is the place, precisely the place where the absence of futurity is a major problem. You know, I mean, you and I are recording this and we've just seen two massive hurricanes. And just at the beginning of hurricane season, one in Texas and one in Florida just destroyed tremendous amount of life and property. And <clears throat> what is to be done about climate change? And there's no conversation about it happening right now. Right. In that case, it's not even just a, a futurity problem. No. It's like there are consequences that are happening in the present. Yeah. That were talked about in the past as a future consequence and are now, like, we're realizing um, happening earlier and sooner than even predicted. Like the early estimates, yeah, yeah. <laughs> predicted. Um yeah, the climate change situation is bizarre to me because, you know, people think about their lives and they, you know, part of, like, people's plans for the future often involves having children. Yeah. And so it's it's very bizarre um, to me that, like, that's such an integral part of people's future planning and future thinking and desire and their future framework. And there's been no major lifestyle changes policy changes. There's been no major shift to like improve the climate change situation for future generations. No. None whatsoever. And that seems to be an integral part of people's uh, ideation about the future <laughs> is their offspring. And yet oh, most policy making is very present centric. So <laughs> I, I, I find that odd. I would never have children. I think it's irresponsible to have children and I'm not making a judgment about people who already have children or have made that choice. But for me personally, I think it's an irresponsible decision because I think there's so much uncertainty about the future of the environment, about the political future. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of political instability. I don't know how that human is going to interact with the world. You know, I feel like I would be personally culpable for any pain and suffering that they encountered whether it's like an environmental thing like it's harder to live on the earth or if they just like have a poor mental health which happens yeah as a historian the entirety of human history is one of suffering <laughs> so it doesn't strike me that this age is particularly bound to suffering in some way that's exponentially different than other epochs of time. But I hear what you're saying about climate change. I just, I read um, Margaret Sanger's The New Race and, and Woman, 1920, this week, which I had not read before. And of course, you know, a bunch of people are like, oh, that's about black genocide. Of course, it's not at all. It's about really responsible family planning and the importance of bodily autonomy and the ability of women to not be forced into being breeders. And it was incredible because A, it's so well written, and B, because she just presaged all of these, you know, environmental catastrophes from 1920. 1920, she was able to see, you know, what unchecked economic growth in the United States would do and how it would produce a permanent underclass, you know, to feed the capitalist machine. I was just struck at how timely that book was then and how well it has stood the test of time now in thinking about reproduction as part of futurity. I was also thinking about Lee Edelman's book, No Future, you know, Queer Through in the Death Drive. I love that book. 
And I, and I like thinking about the disappearance of the child as the marker of futurity, as a, as a transitional moment into a different kind of future that's not uh, predicated on heterosexual reproduction. And that's why I think in one of the earlier seasons we talked about dystopian novels as a space for really creative imaginings of new futurity and why you know dystopia becomes such a hot space for teaching how to think about alternative futures. I just worry that environmental catastrophe now in our lifetime is going to be the only thing that really prompts either the country or the world to really reimagine, you know, the future. It's going to take, in my mind, I think, just tremendous human suffering because of the way we are perceiving capital and time. I think a lot of people are, right now are trying to write optimistically about the millennials and about the way that they shun consumer culture or they want smaller houses or, you know, they want fewer children and they want greater access to contraception and abortion and those being, you know, harbingers of a different kind of imagined futurity. And I hope that that bears out. I just feel like the millennials are going to get sucked into the rat race and the hamster wheel. And, you know, it's going to be hard for them to continue with those ideas as a sort of generational futurity. And it's going to be hard for them because they're so much smaller in population than, say, the baby boomers or the Gen Xers. It's going to be hard for them to sort of change or, or shift the tables about, about thinking about what the new future for the country or the world might look like. It was different for Kennedy because, you know, the baby boom had produced all these young kids. So it's like, you know, over half of the country's population was under the age of 26 by 1966. That's just incredible. That was such a tremendous shift of political power towards the youth. That's one of the reasons why we have Peace Corps and Youth Corps and all these programs where Kennedy was able to charge young people with a different kind of political responsibility for the nation's future and reimagining it in the you know post-war era in the Cold War. Yeah, but we're far less democratic than we were at that time. You know, there has to be some kind of like oh, change yeah. in like campaign finance. And, I totally agree. <laughs> and like the. <laughs> Gerrymandering. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's far less democratic than it was at that time. So there has to be a major shift for millennial mm-hmm. millennials as voters and activists to make any kind of a dent, at least policy-wise. I mean, sure, I at some point, perhaps, politicians have to respond. It has to be a pretty major, pretty major social movement. Yeah, I totally to, agree. At, at this point. You know, I also think that, like, you know, the fact that we're not doing creative futurist imaginaries right now also has something to do with being trapped in the past and about where people get sucked into in terms of, like, their nostalgia and their um, desire to return. To Make America great again. Right. So, right, 1980. So, you know, that slogan is lifted right out of the Reagan playbook. It was Reagan's campaign slogan in 1980. That impulse that Reagan had was really about erasing the social movements of the 1960s and returning America to a pre-war nationhood, nationalism, where white men controlled all political power. That's, like, it was a racist dog whistle. Uh, Nationalism is based on history, like, uh, obsession with the past. Yeah. Unreasonable. Yeah, well, and you see it now because you see, especially in consumer goods, this, like, throwback to the 50s. So, like, 50s Pyrex and 50s textile prints and 50s art, like, this this grounding of the this particular political moment in the conformity and hyper-consumerism 
of the post-war 50s, which is exactly what <laughs> the social movements of the 60s were trying to push back against. And so <clears throat> when you have these moments of intense consumerist or political nostalgia, that seems to me to be a red flag to say, okay, what is it about that historical moment that people are trying to resuscitate you know, as a lifestyle in the present moment? And I feel like that historical impulse to pull it into the present is what explains this lost cause, KKK, Southern nostalgia, you know, for slavery and segregation that we're also seeing. I mean, it's part and parcel of the same kind of, you know, longing for this grossly unequal past, which is why, you know, it's, it's, it's so unnerving and problematic and grotesque. The present feels anachronistic. Yeah, totally. And so... And plus, that's completely correct. When that's the case, I don't... Thinking about the future, I feel like, is the only possibility. Like, it's the only way to think about yourself and your desires. So. <laughs> I mean, but I feel like instead of doing that, people just get so far up their own asses and consumed with petty things or consumed with just the precarity of staying alive in this, you know, extremely fast-paced, alienating, you know, capitalist culture. <laughs> that they find themselves completely and totally unable to imagine different ways of relating, not just to other people, but also to themselves and to their desires. And that that kind of hyper-alienation that labor produces is, is the thing that undercuts people's ability to think creatively about not just their their economic labor, but their sexual labor and their social labor and their emotional labor and their labor in the home. I mean, all of those things get restructured if people stop thinking in a historical way about what their present situation is. And it seems to me that government has a role, an important one, in restructuring the habits of people so that they can move away from these historical notions of their relationship to capital and labor and into more productive, and I not, maybe not productive, that's not the right, that's the, exactly the wrong word, more fulfilling is really the word that I mean, more fulfilling arrangements with their communities and their, and their you know, culture. Yeah. And the white people in particular are so alienated and so resentful and so lonely because they have cut themselves out from community and they have just subscribed whole hog to <clears throat> capital as the way that they structure their time and their feelings about politics. And they have done that to themselves. It's a self-inflicted wound that white people, it's like they've sold their soul to the devil for sure. You know, and so they, they have a complete and total inability to connect with other people, whether they're white or not, but especially if they're not, or if they're queer, if they're brown, if they're disabled, or if they're differently abled, or whatever, that really undermines the long-term security of a future where they have a healthy life. I mean, it's, I see it so clearly living in this small college town, and I think most of them in the U.S. are like this in terms of the predominantly white institutions that create these small town cultures. And I just feel like there is a permanent um, class of folks in these towns that did not benefit from the university and that are permanently poised to um, 
basically sift through the detritus of what's left in a culture that is so hell-bent on privatizing public education. And they really bear the brunt, especially in Arkansas, they bear the brunt of a lack of labor laws, of right-to-work legislation, of weak landlord-tenant laws, and then all this pressure to build, you know, art culture and festival culture and music culture and craft culture that it creates an intrinsic precarity among the wage laborers in the whole country, but especially I see it around here. And so with that precarity and that crushing pressure, you know, of being in the precarious wage class, that's where resentment builds. We were talking about this, you know, during the electoral cycle. It's not the white poor, it's white workers that have resentment and they don't know how to talk about class and so it's e it's much easier to push that resentment into the racial vector of course all white people you know are racist i'm not saying that that's not the case i'm just saying that because we don't talk about class we, because we don't talk about alienation as a direct result as a predictable consequence of of totally uh, harness labor in a capitalist culture, people can't see or describe the way that that use of their labor makes them alienated and resentful. And so they push it off onto other objects, you know, of derision. And that's a problem. And until we can deal with that, you know, sort of problem of the alienation of labor, it's going to be very hard, I think, in this country to move to a different vector from which to imagine new political futures. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.